You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. It is almost like within the true crime world there are categories for the men and women that are found guilty of being serial killers. We have the serial killers that are given more publicity. We have the serial killers that are largely unknown and unheard of. And then we also have some serial killers that just seem to grab the attention of the public at large. It could be fascination. It could be interest in learning more. And it could also be attributed to when a serial killer is active and when they are caught or not caught. This week, we're going to start a series on one of Canada's most notorious serial killers. He has been known as the Scarborough Rapist, he has been known as the Schoolgirl Killer, and he has been known as the Ken in the Ken and Barbie Killers. His story is one of a man who had all the looks in the world and all of the charm in the world, and he used it to ruin so many lives around him for such a long period of time. Hello, and welcome to episode 65 of Gone But Never Forgotten, From Pretty Boy to Disgusting Man, the story of Paul Bernardo. Paul Kenneth Bernardo was born on August 27th of 1964 to Marilyn Bernardo, who was a housewife, and she also worked as a volunteer as a Girl Guide leader, and Kenneth Bernardo, who was a hard-working and well-respected accountant. He was the youngest of three children, having an older brother named Dave and an older sister named Debbie. The family looked very normal from the outside. They owned a beautiful home and property. They had a pool, and they had all of that in a very upscale area of Toronto. The reality, though, was that the Bernardo family was very good at keeping up appearances and seeming to be that family that most others would be jealous of. They had money, they had respect, and they seemed to be living the Canadian dream. However, When away from public eyes, things were perhaps not all as they seemed for the family. In fact, the family turmoil really dated back to before the couple even had their first child, according to many that knew them. Marilyn, according to friends and family, had very low self-esteem and confidence, and many people attributed that change and the change that they saw in her after her and Kenneth first got together. Marilyn would tell people that she felt very quickly and she felt very special because Kenneth wanted to marry her and that he loved her. 
It was believed that even from the start, Kenneth had mentally and emotionally beaten Marilyn down to the point that she thought so lowly about herself. Kenneth was a very heavy drinker, and he was incredibly controlling of Marilyn as well. He was also known to be physically and verbally abusive towards her, and there were known issues between the two dating as far back as 1961. Marilyn, however, would always soldier on in their relationship because she loved him, and she believed and hoped that things would eventually improve and that love would win the day. As the couple had their second child, though, things really started to change. Marilyn, even struggling with self-worth, grew annoyed and angry with Kenneth because she felt that he was ignoring her, and when he wasn't ignoring her, he was abusing her. It was after the birth of their daughter that Marilyn would start an affair with an old boyfriend. It was when that affair was ongoing that Marilyn would give birth to their third son, Paul. Paul's life started off complicated, as he suffered from having a lack of oxygen to his brain, which is known as aphasia. He was also born with a birth defect to the roof of his mouth. Other than that, though, Paul would grow into a vibrant, adorable, and handsome young man. Paul was afforded a decent life to those on the outside, because, as mentioned, he did grow up in a wonderful middle-class home in the Guildwood area of Scarborough, which is a part of the GTA now. But, at the time, it was a city just east of Toronto proper. Marilyn, even though she was fed up with Kenneth, did stay with him, even after the affair out of a sense of loyalty to her family, but she grew more and more depressed and more and more withdrawn at home. Part of the fallout from that was that the children were not getting the love, affection, and attention that they needed and deserved. The combination of the neglect and the fact that the children also would routinely witness the abuse between their parents obviously caused some deep trauma, as it would for any child. Over the years, the suburban dream that the Bernardos tried to put out to the public started to slip away. The children would go without many of the everyday essentials that are needed to sustain a good life. At times, they would go without being fed, and they often would go without clean clothes. The home itself would also start to be dirtier on the inside and unkempt on the outside. Paul found himself being bullied often in school for having dirty clothes and for being a stinky kid because he was not being taken proper care of at home. This caused Paul to withdraw from most people. Because of that, he became isolated and he also did not develop social skills quickly and did not mature and develop at the same pace that his peers did. Unfortunately, that neglect was not the only abuse that was going to take place within the home. Kenneth started to develop an interest in his daughter, Deborah, and he started to sexually use and abuse her at a very young age, and not in secret either. Kenneth would sexually assault her in the middle of movie nights with the entire family, and everyone knew what was happening and what was going on. A major rift would come between Paul and his mother as well as he entered his mid-teens. That is when Paul learned that he was perhaps not the son of Kenneth after all, and that he was the product of an affair. 
Once Marilyn came clean with Paul about that, she started to use that against him in arguments and fights. She would call him all kinds of names, including the bastard child from hell. As anyone could imagine, that type of verbal abuse, while also being essentially told you weren't a part of the family, had a horrible effect on Paul. In spite of everything that was going on in Paul's home, he managed to pick himself up and seemingly persevere and thrive. He went out of his way, since he was now older and could take care of himself, to dress well and ensure that he was clean and put together. He was a good student, he made great grades, and he was fairly popular with girls his own age. Paul would work during the summer as a camp counselor, and he was observed to have been very charismatic and very sensitive when working with children at the camp. He became more and more popular as he grew up and worked hard to be seen differently than he knew he should be based on the home life that he was a product of. Unfortunately, much like the Bernardo home itself, on the inside, Paul was struggling immensely. One of the byproducts, likely of the sexual, of a, sexual assaults from Kenneth to Deborah, Paul grew up being very interested and versed in pornography. Starting at the very young age of 10, Paul started to collect pictures of naked women. As he grew older, he grew more and more curious, and he wanted to know more and see more than the pictures would allow. <clears throat> A few different times, Paul would be caught peeping in windows of women in the neighborhood, and because Kenneth had been caught doing the same in the past, people started to notice and comment that Paul was on his way to turning out just like his father did. For high school, Paul attended Sir Wilfrid Laurier Collegiate in Scarborough, and when he graduated from there, he moved on to the University of Toronto's Scarborough campus, starting in 1982. Paul would also get involved in Amway. Amway was one of the earliest examples of multi-level marketing and was a cutthroat sales atmosphere that had been seen by many over the years to have been nothing but a scam. For Paul, though, the sales techniques that he learned would change his life. He would actually take a lot of the lessons that he learned into the bars with he and his friends. At the U of T, Paul was studying to become an accountant much like his father had, and he wanted to fetch a job after school working locally as a part of a firm. While he was attending the U of T, he would start dating a female who would later testify at his trials. She said that he was very abnormal when it came to his sexual desires. She said that their sex life was based around scripted violence, and that he would do things like strangle her and sodomize her while he held a knife to her throat. Paul found himself spiraling into that world of abnormal fantasies and desires, and that would lead into his life as the Scarborough Rapist. One thing that I will mention is that the rapes in Scarborough did start actually before Paul met Carla, so we will technically go back chronologically when we start to cover his crimes. But first, we will cover Carla and Paul. On October 17th of 1987, Paul and Carla would meet at a Howard Johnson hotel. At the time, Paul was 23, and he was with his friend Van. Carla was 17, and she was at the hotel bar with her friend, Debbie. 
The sexual attraction between Paul and Carla was instantaneous, and they had sex the first night that they met at that hotel. After their one-nighter, both decided that they wanted to see each other again, and they exchanged information and made plans. Friends of Paul would say that this was very unusual for Paul, because he never got attached to any of the women that he dated or had one-night stands with. He was someone who was seemingly just in it for the sex, or, at the very least, he was looking for the right partner. In Carla, it's quite possible that the reason for the change was because Carla was accepting of the sexual fantasies that Paul had. She encouraged the sadistic sexual behavior that Paul enjoyed and was always seeking out. Paul has been classed as a high-dominance male. People that are classified as such are not usually attracted to one woman for any significant amount of time because often they just want to take control and, and any of their most long and meaningful relationships do not grant a high-dominance male what they're looking for on a continuing basis. Carla, however, was a high-dominance female, which is something that could have caused Paul to fall, and he fell hard. Before meeting Paul, Carla was described by her friends as a popular girl, one that was attractive, tough, always shot from the hip, but was also fair, not crass, or rude. If she liked you, she liked you. And if she didn't like you, you did not exist inside of her world. Paul certainly wound up on the right side of that equation. Paul and Carla would see each other and start dating relatively quickly. Paul would drive to see Carla a few times every week, and the two really were not seen without one another. Paul and Carla seemed to have fallen in love fast and hard, and they both absolutely adored one another. Surprisingly, Carla's parents and her family opened Paul or welcomed Paul with open arms. That is not something that you would necessarily see all the time, as the age gap was about six years, with Carla still being a minor. However, what Carla's family saw was a man that seemed to have his shit together. He was moving towards a respectable career, and his personality seemed to fit that of their daughters to a T. Paul wound, would actually wind up moving in with the entire Homolka family, living with Carla, her parents, and her siblings. To say that Carla and Paul had a kinky and adventurous sex life would be an understatement. In Carla, Paul had found someone that was willing to be a part of his fantasy world, and elaborate games, as they would call them. Friends would say that they saw handcuffs and other various items in Carla's bedroom but also said that Carla would talk openly about their kinky sex life, and as such, nobody felt that there was any harm nor foul in how they had sex. Just over two years after they met, Paul and Carla would go on a trip to Niagara Falls, and Paul would propose. At this point in time, this almost seems like we're talking about someone that would become a victim, not a serial killer. The story is too fluffy. Paul obviously had a rough family life when he was a child, but it would seem like he had everything together the way that this story is going. Carla and Paul's story is damn near romantic so far. It's too bad that I already spoiled that during all of this time, 
Paul was also doing other things. It would appear that Paul had learned one thing from his parents. He had learned how to essentially live two lives. The life that everyone around him saw him living and thriving at, and the life that was behind closed doors, the criminal and predator side of Paul. When you read about his story, you can actually see why someone like Luca Magnata, who we covered previously, idolized Paul and Carla to some extent. I think that when you're broken in the ways that you have to be in order to become a killer, you really have a sick admiration for anyone that can live such a double life. So, as Paul proposed to Carla, he had a lot of secrets. He was the Scarborough rapist, and he also had been cheating on Carla throughout their relationship. At this point, it's documented that Carla did not know about his behaviors criminally or his infidelities. Over time, however, Carla did start to notice things. The one thing that perhaps stood out the most to her was that he was also trending towards his father in another way, more and more. That was his lust for young girls, which was becoming a major part of Paul's life. Carla started to notice that Paul would look at her younger sister Tammy, who was 12, a lot. She even caught him looking in the window of her sister, much like his dad had done with his younger sister. The problem was that seeing the way that Paul was with Tammy gave Carla two main responses. The first was that she started to become jealous of Tammy, and the fact that Paul found her so desirable. And the second reaction was that because she loved Paul so much, she wanted and needed to feed his ego and help him in all areas of his life. She started to become a part of his crimes and would even encourage him seemingly all in an effort to make Paul continue to love her. To end this episode, what I'm going to do is run down the long list of crimes that were attributed to Paul Bernardo as the Scarborough Rapist. Listener discretion is advised, as with this episode, there is a lot of mention of sexual activity with minors. It's up for debate, as there are crimes that are believed to have been committed by Paul prior to the spree of the Scarborough Rapist. He was served two restraining orders in 1986 from two women for harassment and obscene phone calls. So, he certainly was a deviant at that time, regardless of whether he was assaulting or raping women. On May 4, 1987, Paul Bernardo would commit what is considered his first rape in Scarborough. The victim was a 21-year-old woman, and she was right in front of her parents' home at the time. Paul had followed the woman home, and the attack lasted for more than 30 minutes. On May 14, 1987, 10 days later, Paul would attack a 19-year-old woman in the backyard of her parents' home. This attack would again last for more than half an hour. It's really crazy to think about how brazen he was even right here at the beginning, or what we believe is the beginning. To be attacking people at their homes is something that just seems arrogant. He believed that he knew how to not get caught, and it turns out that he was right for a long time. On July 27th of 1987, Paul would attempt his third rape. Only this time he found out that maybe he wasn't invincible. 
He attacked a young woman and he did physically assault her. But when she fought back against him, he fled the scene. On September 29th of 1987, Paul attempted to rape a 15-year-old girl at her home. He broke into the home in Scarborough and then made his way into the girl's bedroom. He would jump on the girl, pin her to the bed, and threaten her with a knife. He would also leave a bruise on the side of her face and he bit her ear very hard. Paul, however, had to flee again because the girl's mom came into the bedroom and started screaming. Another man, Anthony Hainmeyer, was actually convicted of sexual assault in 1989, and he served 16 months in prison for this crime. Later, he would be exonerated when Paul admitted to the crime all the way in 2006. He would then seem to take a layoff for about three months. Perhaps this was because the last victim fought back, but perhaps also it was because his attention was taken elsewhere. Between July and the next rape, sorry, between September and the next rape, Paul would of course meet Carla on October 17th of 1987. On December 16th of 1987, though, Paul would commit his third rape. The victim this time was a 15-year-old girl. Paul's rape on this young girl lasted for more than an hour. <clears throat> the Toronto Police Services would then tell the public the next day that they needed to be careful. It appeared that they may have a serial rapist in their midst and they wanted women in Scarborough to be wary of traveling alone at night and they also wanted they also warned against women being alone on buses. It was believed that the attacker was following the victims as they traveled. One week later, on December 23rd, Paul would commit his fourth rape. <clears throat> Paul raped a 17-year-old girl and wielded a knife that he would become known to use to threaten his victims. At this point, the media began to call this unknown culprit the Scarborough Rapist. I also want to point out the obvious. These last two crimes and everything that comes after also came after Paul had started dating Carla. On April 18th of 1988, four months later, Paul would assault another 17-year-old girl. The assault would last for 45 minutes. On May 25th of 1988, Paul would almost get caught. Because the Scarborough rapist had been using bus routes and bus uh, terminals to track his victims, there were officers that were always on the lookout. On this date, one Metro Toronto investigator was staking out a bus shelter, and he saw Paul hiding nearby under a tree. He approached, and when he did, Paul ran away. The officer pursued, but was unable to catch him. You would think that perhaps Paul would be concerned after that close call, and I suppose in some ways he was. But... Only five days later, he would rape an 18-year-old woman, but this time in Mississauga, Ontario, which is only about 40 kilometers or 25 miles southwest of Scarborough. So, while he still needed to feed the urges that he was having, he did leave Scarborough to do it, obviously concerned that the city was being watched. On October 4th of 1988, however, Paul would attempt to rape another victim. The woman fought him off, thankfully, but he did stab her twice, once in her thigh and once in her buttock, 
and she required 12 stitches. You could really start to see the violence and the sexual assault starting to work in tandem here. It appears that Paul was really starting to show his sadism as well. This is a brutal attack, and he did not mind stabbing victims. On November 16th, Paul would commit his seventh rape against an 18-year-old woman, again in the backyard of her parents' home. November 17th, the day after, saw the police announce that they had formed a special task force that was dedicated to catching the Scarborough rapist. They knew that they were after a man that was brazen and had the ability to escape, and he seemingly had no fear. On December 27th of 1988, Paul would be chased off while he attempted to rape an eighth victim. A neighbor would be alerted to the situation and chase Paul off. Six months would pass, and then on June 20th of 1989, Paul would again attempt to rape a young woman. The woman again, though, fought back, and she screamed loud enough that her neighbors heard. Paul ran away from the scene, and this time he had some damage done to him. He had scratches on his face from the victim fighting back. On August 15th of 1989, Paul would commit his eighth rape. This time the victim was a 22-year-old woman. Paul had followed and stalked her the night before and watched her through her windows. He then waited on the second night for her to arrive home, and he attacked and raped her for two hours. On November 21st of 1989, he raped a 15-year-old girl at a bus shelter. On December 22nd of 1989, he raped a 19-year-old woman, and on May 26th of 1990, he would rape another 19-year-old woman. This last victim, however, would prove to be a problem. She had a very vivid recollection of the man that had attacked her, and this allowed the police to have a breakthrough. They created a computer composite of the alleged rapist, and on November 23rd, the image would be published in newspapers in Toronto and around the country. This had now been two and a half years that Paul had been raping and attacking women in Scarborough, and there certainly were some red flags that would point to Paul at this point. He had various women complaining of his activities. As we mentioned, he had even had restraining orders taken out on him. Now, the issue was that the recollection of his last victim was actually very good, and the image that was circling around looked a lot like Paul. The problem here in hindsight is that the police should have been aware of Paul and should have at least done an interview with him. All the way back in January of 1988, a woman even filed an informal statement with police. The report actually listed Paul Bernardo as the attacker in her sexual assault. With the photo in the media, between May and September of 1990, police had had more than 130 DNA samples submitted in the case as people came forward and police interviewed them, anyone that looked like the man in the composite. Two people reported to police that they believed that the Scarborough rapist was in fact Paul. One of the DNA samples that police had obtained in this case was actually the DNA sample of Paul Bernardo. The unfortunate thing, though, was that police had talked mainly to one friend of Paul, 
Alex Smyrnas. And they said that Alex came across very insecure and skittish, and he was awkward when they talked to him. In contrast, when they finally did interview Paul on November 20th of 1990, they would talk to him for 35 minutes, and they noted that he voluntarily gave his DNA to them. When police asked him why he thought he had been brought in, he admitted to police that he knew he looked a lot like the composite that was circling. The detectives would conclude that he was well-educated, well-adjusted, and very polite. They decided that he could not be the man that was committing these vicious rapes and vicious assaults. Paul was released the next day. Something very serious did happen that existed outside of the Scarborough Rapist incidents. So at the start of the next episode, we will double back and talk about what happened with Carla's sister. But I felt it was pertinent to go through Paul's early life and his crimes as the Scarborough Rapist in this episode. We will get more into um, Tammy and everything else in the next episode. Because of what had happened with Tammy, Paul and Carla had decided to give Carla's parents a break, and they had started to rent a place in St. Catharines, Ontario. That is where Paul went after he left his interview with police. He went there, and he told Carla that he was not the Scarborough Rapist. Paul left permanently for St. Catharines on February 1st of 1991, and the crimes of the Scarborough Rapist came to an end. On April 6th of 1991, though, Paul would commit his 12th rape, this time in St. Catharines. The victim of this was a 14-year-old girl who Paul nabbed in broad daylight, and he did not use a bus stop. Seemingly, he was upping the level of his confidence, having escaped the police, and he also was about to, to up the level of the heinousness of his crimes. For this week... I will leave it there and put a wrap on episode one of our series on Paul Bernardo, the beginning of his life and his deep descent into crime well underway here. Stay tuned as we get into the murders, the court case, and everything else that encircles Paul and Carla as their story continues to unfold. Just a reminder, if you do sign up with us over on Patreon, you get input into the show. You get exclusive episodes, and each and every week you get a video of me reacting to that week's case that only patrons can see. I have a lot of recollection on the Paul Bernardo case, and I reckon I'm going to have many a choice word as we work our way through this case. So please, sign up for less than a cup of coffee per month, and you can get some exclusive content and have another platform to interact with me and the podcast on. Thank you all for listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. I'll see you back here next week. Be better.